Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, with Eleanor Goldfield. Our first guest today is Danielle McLean. She's senior editor at Smart Cities Dive, a national online news publication that covers the most impactful news and trends shaping smart cities. She's also the first openly transgender woman to serve on the Society of Professional Journalists Board of Directors. Danielle McLean also had the number one story in Censored 2021 on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Later in the program, Eleanor Goldfield joins the conversation with Nolan Higdon and myself to talk about a new publication, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. All that in the state of the free press on this Project Censored show. Stay with us. Alibi skies, another guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our attacks and all the prisons and the levees and the mines collapsing. And all the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach on potential fame. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are honored to welcome Danielle McLean, who is a senior editor at Smart Cities Dive, a national online news publication that covers the most impactful news and trends shaping smart cities, and the first known openly transgender woman to serve on the Society of Professional Journalists Board of Directors. Danielle was previously a staff reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, where she covered federal and state higher ed policies and a former investigative reporter at the Bangor Daily News, later Think Progress, writing about housing, poverty, and abuse of underrepresented populations, among a host of other issues. After graduating from Hofstra University with a journalism degree, Danielle covered a number of Massachusetts city halls for several newspapers near her hometown, including the Somerville Journal, Milford Daily News, and the Boston Globe. Danielle also previously served as the chairperson of SPJ's National Ethics and Freedom of Information Committees. We're certainly going to talk about that. Danielle McLean, it is such an honor to welcome you to the Project Censored show today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm also honored that you generously wrote a stellar and significant and important foreword for Project Censored State of the Free Press 2020 book out on the Censored Press and Seven Stories Press. Why don't we start there? One of the things that I wanted to call attention to, you had the top underreported or censored story from the previous book, the Censored State of the Free Press 2021 book on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. We're going to get to that with a little update among some of the other things you're doing. You're doing so many important things. But this tipped us off, Andy and I, and we reached out to you to invite you to do this. And again, you were gracious to do it. And uh, I'd really like to just talk about the overview that all of your work and your experience, and you penned a really important forward talking about the shortcomings of our journalistic industry and what needs to be done. The forward, I guess, I was really excited when you asked me to take this on. It was actually an area that, um, that, you know, I had felt as a local reporter, I think you mentioned several of the different newest outlets that I reported for coming out of college. When I first started, I was making about $25,000, no health insurance, writing two to four stories a day, covering four cities and towns around Massachusetts. That's $25,000, no health insurance um, in Massachusetts. Right outside Boston is not really attainable. I was a little bit lucky and privileged because I, you know, have a family that would allow me to stay at their house and 
provide me uh, gas money when I need it. It's really tough. I was thinking about somebody that doesn't have that support, a background that's more economically disadvantaged. It's just like starting off in this industry is not really even attainable at all. Even after I got a different jobs, it was from former Gatehouse Media newspapers, which is you know now Gannett owned. I was making $27,000 a year covering different cities and towns throughout Massachusetts. Then I did live like outside my parents' house. I was living, you know, my own apartment. And again, I had like a backstop if I desperately needed like rent money. But there was like days when I was asking my editor for $5 for gas to get home. It's just such a terrible situation right now. And so what they're doing is they're cutting more and more staff from these newsrooms all across the country. They're just dissolving all these local newspapers across the country. Reporters are trying their best to, to cover these small town school committees, city councils, county executive board meetings, and different things like that to report the news and to report what's happening. Same with different state houses, but they're being asked to do with more with absolutely less and like with zero resources, zero help. There's just more and more of these like corporate media giants that are just like buying up all these different newspapers around the country and, and they're just completely gutting them, just gutting them. And it's terrible for democracy. What's being replaced with it is pretty much just garbage. Right now we have a lack of trust in media. We have a lack of trust in each other. Some of the worst political polarization since I've been alive going on right now. And things are just getting worse. And I think it can all be rooted back to this issue of the death of local news. There's been some nonprofits that have been trying to solve some of these issues, trying to fill in the gaps in some of these areas, but even that's it's, it's just difficult. It's hard for them to replace just the, ma- the mass gutting that has just been going on around the country. So we're talking about mass wounds to the free press here as a pillar of a democratic republic, and we're we're barely able to keep Band-Aids going. And, and of course, at Project Censored, we like to highlight the many great independent and alternative publications and journalists that there are because there are so many. But Danielle, like you just described, while I'm not glad to hear about the challenges that you that you faced as a journalist trying to get started, get moving, make a living, but I'm glad that you shared that information. I chair the journalism department over at Diablo Valley College, like 20-some thousand students. A lot of people, they're not looking at journalism the same. They're not looking at it as a viable career alternative. They're more into influencing and punditry and sports commentary and these kind of things. And so, you know, as Victor Picard said, democracy without journalism, that's not really much of a democracy. And your work with SBJ, Society of Journalists, now you're on the board of directors and congratulations could you say a few things about the code of ethics? You know, we like to try to talk about that as much as possible on the show. You wrote a little bit about that in the introduction. And, and we think that these bear repeating and they should be mantras of the remaining newsrooms. That's what builds trust. That's what builds a better relationship with, with your audience, with the citizens of a society. What can you tell us about that? It's the benchmark that all journalists should adhere to for practicing ethical journalism. And every reporter should have a copy of the SPJ Code of Ethics on their desk. And it really is that important. Some of them, reporters should be vigilant and courageous about holding those in power, give voice to the voiceless. They need to be to serve as watchdogs over the public affairs and the government, make sure the public's business is being conducted in the open. Reporters need to boldly tell the story of diversity and magnitude of human experience and see whose voices we suddenly hear. 
And there's many other parts to it reporters need to adhere to. Those pillars alone are things that you can only do when you have the resources to do it. It's only things that you can do when you have the support and the staff to do it, to be able to write some of the feature stories and the fluff stories, but also report the news, provide that watchdog, provide that community service. And right now, what those kind of stories are being treated at is they're like bonus extra stories that like reporters pretty much need to do on their own time. And that's very, very dangerous. What that does, it allows government officials pretty much to do whatever would not be held accountable for the decisions and actions that they make that affect real people and affect their community. I also appreciate that you are using the word dangerous. There's consequences for these news deserts. There's consequences. There's stories that we need to know and hear. There's voices that are out there that aren't being heard enough. And you, again, wrote the foreword for our Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. And I want to quote you here. You write, sadly, too many of the media's scarce resources are devoted to amplifying the voices of the country's most powerful government officials and corporate executives, uncritically publicizing their opinions and short-term goals instead of exploring the collective impacts that their decisions might have on society and its most vulnerable members. This needs to change. Our industry needs to change. You write from the foreword of Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022, and Danielle One of these groups, these demographics that you've written about, the missing and murdered indigenous people. That was the number one story from the previous year. What attunes you to these very important stories that the corporate media can't seem to be bothered with? I've always pictured government as this power and this force that could help change lives and to help prop up the people that are underrepresented. And it really doesn't always work that way. There's a lot of really good meaning policies in place that and people that are trying to different policies and regulations that are in place that are trying to solve these issues, but a lot of times they're underfunded. There's not enough support. I've done so much reporting on like HUD and different HUD programs that really are well-intentioned in terms of solving some of these really big issues, but HUD is gutted to low staffing. And there's very little people just making sure that people aren't being abused by these programs and exploited. So I'm constantly trying to think about that. I'm trying to think about how are different policies really being implemented and applied in real life. I'm still doing that today with smart cities. Our news publication is more geared towards city planners or city officials. And so we're writing about a lot of these same issues, homelessness, poverty, adaption to climate change, preparing for new technologies and smart technologies that will be addressing a lot of those like issues and making cities like better plan and everything like that. But always crossing my mind, always in the background is, okay, they're imposing these policies. How are they actually being applied in real life? How are they being effective? A lot of the times, not really. Sometimes they take a newspaper or the public's voice to realize, oh, wait, we're leaving behind certain populations or this policy is having not really the impact that we expected and it's actually harming some communities. And that happens all the time. And that's why it is so important to think along those terms of like, okay, it's not like what they say is happening. It's like, how is it actually being applied here? And so that is something that's always in the back of my mind and I'm always thinking about. With that story, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls story. That was actually a piece that I got tipped off on. I did some reporting on voter suppression up in North Dakota during the 
2018 midterms, I uh, was driving along to different native reservations, to four different native reservations in North Dakota, and I was covering voter suppression. But one thing that kept popping up is that issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. The missing and murdered Indigenous women piece was actually one of the last stories that got published on Think Progress, so I'm pretty proud of that. That one, I was actually at the first ever Native American Candidates Forum for presidential candidates. And so I don't think all of the candidates are there, but most of the Democratic candidates were in attendance there and, you know, giving their speeches and answering questions from representatives from the different tribes around the country. It was really powerful, but like one thing that kept getting addressed, one of the major issues um, that was facing all of these tribes was that issue. And so I started asking questions about it. I found somebody, an older woman from South Dakota that had been beaten when she was younger and um, abused and, you know, just based on pure racism against, you know, Native people. I spoke to different advocates and listened to the presidential candidates talk and discuss some of their policy ideas and listen to the reaction that different tribal members had to some of those policy ideas. And so I put together the story and then I got some other statistics. It's really, it's a really tough issue. I mean, Native, Native women are very easy targets because they're so far out in these very remote areas. There's very little law enforcement presence around there. The tribal police departments don't have the resources to go and investigate this stuff. The media doesn't pay attention to this. Like, you know, indigenous woman goes missing. You hear crickets. You'd be lucky if you get like a a 10 second segment on a local news broadcast, but a white woman goes missing. Oh my gosh, you have 24 seven coverage on CNN for two weeks. A lot of racism and historic racism, systemic racism is involved. It sounds like the Biden administration is trying to make some moves. I think they just signed an executive order to address some of the issues, but it's based on my reporting, it's probably going to take a lot of funding from Congress to actually address these issues. We're going to have to take a quick break here, but it also takes reporters like you being attuned to it and reporting about it and having outlets that want to publish it and push it and make that agenda known to other people outside that community that it really matters. And one of the core ethics for SPJ is minimize harm. And that's a really, really, really big one in that regard. I'd like to remind our listeners, you're listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacific Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Also, I am joined by Danielle McLean, senior editor of Smart Cities Dive, also wrote the foreword to the most recent Project Censored book, Project Censored State of the Free Press 2022. We will continue our conversation with Danielle McLean after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, we're joined by Danielle McLean, senior editor at Smart Cities Dive, a national online news publication that covers the most impactful news and trends shaping smart cities. Danielle's also the first openly transgender woman to serve on the Society of Professional Journalists Board of Directors and formerly the Committee for Journalistic Ethics and the Code of Ethics of SPJ. And we've been talking about those issues and those things. We also talked about one of the very important stories Danielle wrote that was the top underreported 
recorded story of our previous book on missing and murdered Indigenous women. And now we want to turn to more of Danielle McLean's work, bringing us closer to the present. You've got some new gigs. You've got some new things happening. Tell us about Smart Cities Dive a little bit more specifically, and maybe tell us about a couple of more recent stories and things that you're working on. And maybe start just by explaining to our listeners, why does Smart Cities Dive matter in the world of journalism? We're part of this other larger trade publication group. It's called Industry Dive. We have lots of different newsletters. It's predominantly our news goes out through a newsletter, but we have a website as well. We have one that covers like supply chain dive. We have a waste dive that's covering the waste and recycling industry. We have utility dive. So many different dives. Medtech dive, higher ed dive. It's a movement called Smart Cities, integrating all of these new technologies into, to make cities run better, to improve civic and public life, to address inequalities. And it's like integrating like all these like new technologies to do that. There's a lot of different companies that are involved in the space. All cities are trying to integrate this new technology. Big cities, small cities. There's all sorts of other supports around it. So we are pretty much the publication for that movement and that industry. A lot of it is just basic. How can cities do better engagement, public participation? I just wrote a story about how some cities, Seattle and Austin, and certain departments within those cities have been actually giving incentives and paying people to provide input on certain projects that they're doing that would have an impact on the community to try and get like better participation and just get a better project in general. I'm working on a piece right now about how the rate of home ownership has spiked in 2020, spiked to historic highs, yet Black families are buy homes at much lower rates than white families and the symptoms why. So I have focused a lot on housing and poverty and low-income populations. We have a reporter that covers the electrification of different cities in terms of like electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, last mile transportation, like the integration of scooters and making sure it's safe, cover crime and safety and decarbonization of buildings and how cities are adapting to the effects of climate change and the climate crisis. Cities are hotter than ever now. You know, how are they addressing heat islands? We've covered how our cities adapting to flooding and what happens to basement apartments. That's an amazing range of things that very significant. And we're not just talking about wealthy people and the perspective of the 1% in living in the cities. You're talking about civics, grassroots level kind of journalism, telling people what they really need to know to navigate the things that they're facing, to find solutions, collective solutions to the challenges that are being faced. How might you describe, Danielle McLean, the different narrative and different approach that you take at Smart Cities versus some of the major urban legacy media papers? Well, like, you know, you've got the New York Times or the Washington Post, these big urban papers. They would say that, well, they also are interested in those issues and they also cover those issues, but they tend to have a different angle. They tend to be serving a different constituency almost. And they're more writing for the general public, I'd say, whereas us is like writing for people within the industry. So we assume our readers have like a little bit more knowledge and insight into this. We have a small but mighty team that's devoted to covering this for us. And this is kind of like all we think about. I'm sure the New York Times has a small department covering a lot of these same issues, but they're also come from a national perspective. We're writing for a different audience than them. We're a trade publication and they're like a general publication. 
Danielle McLean, the list is so long of the things that you've done and the things that you write about and the work that you do. You've written about whistleblower protections. You've done Freedom of Information Act work. You've done work on discrimination against trans people, LGBTQIA+. Any of these issues that you'd like to talk about? We've covered all of these issues in the Project Censored show, so I feel like we could have you here over and over to, to address so many of these different things. But in the few minutes we have left, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk to us about a couple of these things. Well, it's hard to pick because they're all self-meaningful. I'm going to pick the issue of trans and some of the trans discrimination that's been going on just because for me personally, it's been a rough couple of weeks. It's a trans woman that plays ice hockey herself. It's been a really rough couple of weeks seeing what's been happening with some of these trans sports bills that have been happening and a lot of terrible rhetoric that's been happening, just bullying against like certain trans athletes, but also more specifically down in Texas now where they're actually like hunting down families right now, investigating loving families that all they've done, what is just, you know, parents that just supported their children. I did a piece that Hetchinger report last year where I talked about a young trans girl in middle school in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas who faced all sorts of discrimination from her school. This family is just absolutely amazing and has been very outspoken. Right now, at this moment, that family now, it's like not only is, you know, has her daughter not allowed to go to the bathroom for periods of time or like use a water fountain at school, she now has to worry about being separated from her mom from protective services and having her mom being arrested just for giving her the support and love that she needs. It's so sick. It's so terrible. You know, the don't say gay bill in Texas is just awful. In terms of trans sports bill, the trans sports bills that have been happening across the country, I play on it's called Team Trans. It's an ice hockey team that's made up of every single trans hockey player in North America, including Canada and the U.S. I play women's hockey. I play like adult women's hockey, mediocre player on a very high level team. So I'm like, the fact that trans women are going to be overtaking like women's sports is absolutely asinine. It's insane. And then they like pick out like one player that's had like moderate success. And they're like, see, they're completely dominating this. They don't care about women's sports. They don't care about trans athletes dominating or whatever. This is just based on pure transphobia and trying to erase trans women from um, everyday life. And it's, it's just absolutely sick. It's heartbreaking and it's awful. And thank you for giving me a platform to kind of yell about it. Well, Danielle McLean, I really appreciate that. I appreciate your perspective and I certainly appreciate the efforts that you're making to really, you know, again, to share these perspectives and and do so journalistically. Uh, and in the spirit of the SPJ's Code of Ethics, you do amazing work. We're honored at the project that you penned such a, a poignant forward for us and for our readers. And so I was really glad that we had the opportunity to bring you on to the Project Censored show for our listeners so that everybody would get to hear from you. And also those of you that might be watching some of the video clips online will actually get to see you. So Danielle McLean, you are a senior editor at Smart Cities Dive. It has been an honor to talk with you today. Is there anywhere people can go to find your work or follow you on social media? Anything you'd like to share? Social media, Danielle B. McLean, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E. B and then M-C-L-E-A-N. That's my Twitter account. So Danielle B. McLean is my Twitter account. And then follow our newsletter if you want to hear about all of our Smart Cities developments at smartcitiesdive.com. 
It's wonderful for you to take time out of your very busy schedule with new gigs and all to talk to us here in the Project Censored Show. So thanks so much. Up next, Eleanor Goldfield will be with us. Also, Nolan Higdon. The three of us discuss a new book that Nolan and I just wrote for Rutledge. Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Stay tuned for a conversation about the importance of critical pedagogy, education, critical media literacy, and civic engagement. Stay tuned. Coming up next, Eleanor Goldfield interviews me along with Nolan Higdon. We'll talk about a new text from Rutledge, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Nolan Higdon is a lecturer at Merrill College in the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. He's a founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas, and he sits on the board of the Action Coalition for Media Education, ACME, and Northwest Alliance for Alternative Media and Education. He's also a longtime contributor to the Project Censored annual book. And in addition, he's been a contributor to Truthout, Counterpunch, and a source of expertise for numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, CNBC, and the San Francisco Chronicle. I doubt that Mickey Huff needs any introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Besides being the executive producer and the co-host of the Project Censored show, which you're listening to, he's also the director of Project Censored and president of the nonprofit Media Freedom Foundation. He's also a professor of social science, history, and journalism at Diablo Valley College, where he co-chairs the history program and is chair of the journalism department. Mickey and Nolan are also co-authors of the 2019 book, United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. Their most recent book, which we're here to discuss today, is called Let's Agree to Disagree, a book that seeks to foster constructive dialogue through critical thinking and critical media literacy. This transformative text introduces readers to useful theories, powerful case studies, and easily adoptable strategies for becoming sharper critical thinkers, more effective communicators, and critically media literate citizens. Thanks, y'all, for being here. I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about this textbook because it really showcases the educational angles of what we do both at and outside of the project. I'd like to start off with the topic of division and something that was written way back in the day in 1787 in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, James Madison wrote that divide et impera, which is divide and conquer in Latin, the retrobrated axiom of tyranny is under certain qualifications, the only policy by which a republic can be administered on just principles. So you could really kind of say that the nation was founded on the concept of division, 
In the book, you talk about how culture is a vital aspect to consider in conflict situations. So with a country this size, with so many varied lived experiences and histories, how do you find cohesion in that division? Yeah, thank, uh, thanks for asking that, Eleanor. And thanks for having me on the program. And what's up to the whole Project Censored Universe? It's your question about division. Uh, you know, there's a lot of obviously contradictions in, in the human experience in general and the founding of the United States in, in particular. So this isn't to excuse away or, or dismiss any of those key facets that you brought up there. But the messy process of democracy is, is about, you know, finding consensus or, or majority um, opinion being put into practice. And it's not every day that I enjoy uh, quoting imperialists like Winston Churchill, but I do happen to agree with Churchill in the sense that democracy is the worst system, except for all the rest that have been tried from time to time. So I do have faith in democracy as being the best system to govern a nation of 330 million people, if we're going to have one. And that system necessitates not only citizens being knowledgeable about what's going on within their democracy, this is why we have freedom of the press, this is why we, this was the emphasis by public education, but also being able to engage with ideas to challenge themselves and challenge others. And that's where communication and dialogue are so essential to a strong democracy. We need to be able to disagree with each other, to learn from each other, to give context, to help inform our decisions about whether or not to vote, who to vote for, what policies to support, what policies to oppose, whether or not to go on the street and protest. All those things are really shaped by our communication infrastructure and um, information infrastructure. And what we were particularly concerned about and why we, we wrote this text is that the United States has slipped into a level of partisanship, I think unmatched in its history. Um, it's no longer that we, we simply disagree some polls show that Americans' number one fear is other Americans. So we don't just disagree, we're scared of each other. And it's become socially acceptable to say, I don't talk to people I disagree with. We call them things like deplorables, or how the right-wingers call them like libtards and things like this, these derogatory terms to dismiss half of the country. And these new communication tools have allowed us to customize who we talk to. So we can block people we disagree with and, and limit our information and people to people we agree with. So this text is really a response to this larger problem we see and what folks can actually do about it. And Eleanor, I would just add quickly to that, just from the text, we include a lot of diverse voices and let's agree to disagree. So, you know, people listening to the program or seeing us seeing two white guys and they're like, oh, okay, they're going to, they're going to tell us that our differences don't matter. That's not what the text is about at all. And again, that's what happens when people judge a book by the cover or just what the people look like who wrote it. But this is a book, of, it's, it's, it's critical pedagogy. It's literally about trying to help people understand each other through constructing rational arguments and vetting evidence and sharing a diverse group of kinds of news or information sources. But there's a great quote we have by Cornell West who reminds us that civil discourse has been lost to destructive conflict in our society because, quote, the eclipse of integrity and honesty and decency and the normalization of corruption, deceit, and mendacity. It's all about manipulating your political opponents to diminish them and show them they have nothing to say or contribute. People no longer have dialogue. It's all monologue. And so we're all in our own media silos talking 
either with each other or about the other, not with the other. And so that's how we're, we frame the book. And we use a lot of diverse examples to show people who are doing these things and have done them to great effect. Yeah, thank you for, for highlighting that. Uh, all very important points there. And I kind of want to circle back to something that you mentioned, Nolan, about partisanship. And, you know, I, I partially grew up in Sweden that has oodles, I'll say, oodles of political parties. Uh, and of course, in the US, there are basically two parties and basically one if you consider the actual policies. How much do you think that this extreme division and this othering comes down to that two-party system? Do you think like if we had more political parties, would that help? It's a great question. And, and I really want to emphasize a point you made, which I think is spot on, which is the two dominant parties in the United States actually agree on more than we, we lead on. And I think this gets to, to what we have in the text, was, which where our media system finds those small differences or sometimes big differences and exploits them and amplifies them. So we feel like we understand this character of the other person who stands against everything that we stand for. But in reality, there's a small set of issues that we disagree upon and they're just exploited and, and amplified. I think in the United States, having more than two parties would, would be beneficial. I know this from coming from the left side of the political spectrum in the United States. It's tough. Do I spend my time critiquing conservative policies and conservative talking points or spend my time critiquing the Democrats for going further and further to the center? Where do I spend that energy? And then because people have been trained to think in binaries, if you critique the Democrats, they automatically think you're a Republican. They don't know the distinction between being a leftist and a Democrat. So it creates those sorts of complications, I think, would, would disappear. But I'm not the first person to say this, obviously. Uh, you would need the two parties to agree to get rid of the two-party system. And one thing they definitely agree on is they do not want any more than two parties controlling the system. You can say the same thing about the corporate media as far as how they divide it up, red, you know, whether you want to be a red state, blue state, red state, blue pill, you know, the rabbit hole of the matrix. Um, the corporate media basically mirrors and reflects this and the corporate political establishment and the corporate media, they just synergistically spiral and, and play off of each other to foment more and more discord because they're the beneficiaries of it. The sensationalist kind of coverage, they're beneficiaries of it. Who's not a beneficiary of it? Us. You know, we, we the supposed people, we the supposed United States that are incredibly disunited. But the irony too, Eleanor, and it's important to point out that we do in the book in different places is that when we focus on negative news cycles and we focus on division, strangely, that's what we see. When we focus on, you know, not litmus testing the other out, the left is great at this too, 99% agreement, 1% disagreement, and now I'll never talk to you because of that 1% reason. It's really a lot of foot sh uh, shooting, you know what I mean? Uh, and then after we shoot the foot, we put it in our mouths. So this book, the, the Let's Create a Disagree book really is a kind of a primer. These are things that we can do and they really can work, but people have to really make the effort. And that's why I mean about the focus. If we focus on the things we have in common with the person next door that we, we, we only see the division, we only see the Trump flag, or we only see the I'm with her, it just furthers us down that more binary construct. And instead of digging below that surface to find out 
bothering to, to find out. That's the key. Bothering to find out what's going on underneath that. What's, what are the struggles that other people are going through that you never see? Some people's struggles are very obvious. Others are very quiet, yet internally violent. And not to get psychotherapeutic here, but I think that we can learn a lot from each other when we learn about constructive, not destructive dialogue and also critical listening, not just thinking and speaking. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm reminded of the old adage, perception is reality. And I think this kind of leads to a keystone issue, right? Is that, you know, how you perceive the world is your reality. And we each have our own private little film that we're the star of, as Chris Hedges put it once. And so I'm curious because, you know, with regards to the media, which is a huge issue that you bring up in the book, is how corporate media really drives this division. You both mentioned that already. And as a journalist myself, I have often said that there's no such thing as objective reporting because there is no capital T truth. So I often use the example of, let's say it's raining. Well, how are you going to report that? If you're a weather person, fine, you just say it's raining, you know, we're done. But as a journalist, okay, well, how are you covering that rain? Are you talking to the unhoused about how this affects their daily life? Or are you talking to the rich guy about how now it ruined his day on his yacht? I mean, it's a completely different story depending on who you talk to. And basically your perception of reality will dictate who you talk to as a journalist and how that story forms. And of course, then how that is brought to other people. So I'm curious, how do you grapple with, with, with that aspect of things uh, in terms of objectivity versus subjectivity? That's such a great example, Eleanor, of what we talk about in the, the text as well, this idea of, of framing. Journalists have a lot of power to frame our interpretation of events. So sometimes, as you point out with rain, it's not that the rain doesn't exist. That's not the problem. It's how we interpret the importance of the rain as a news story. And this is the power that we give to journalists. Typically, this is why we've had things like editors. They've been there to tease out bias, uh, to make sure that we get a diversity of views on a particular story. It's too much to go into now, but I know the Project Censored radio show goes into this and has for years that increasingly editors really serve in legacy media, serve to make that story about one narrow bias. So I still like the idea of in, in journalism, whether it be legacy media, new media, alternative media, whatever you want to call it, of aspiring for objectivity. I think it's a very important aspiration. But as both a journalist and a news user, we, we should be cognizant of the fact that we're never going to achieve it. There's always something there that is framing the story. And so that's why when, when folks like read a story they disagree with or something and they say, oh, that news outlet's bias. To me, that's the laziest, most pointless statement you can make. Duh, everything has some bias. It has some framing. That's great. It's just like saying there's oxygen outside. Now, now tell me what it actually means. Like, what is that bias? How does it influence audiences? Why is that bias important? That's the really kind of deep analysis you need to do to make a comment like that matter. And I think your example really, really gets to that. So kind of circling back or continuing on with that idea of perspective, a Kurdish YPG fighter once said in an interview several years ago uh, about the way that media portrays their communities and their ongoing struggles, quote, everyone may be lying, but the war is real. In the book, you have an entire section on critical media literacy, which is, of course, something that Media Freedom Foundation and Project Censored works heavily around. And it seems like this is a precursor to any kind of conversation or debate. 
Because if people can't recognize lies or propaganda that inform their opinions, how can they then be moved to shift those opinions? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why, well, again, this is why we actually teach, not preach. We're not preachers. We're teachers. We're educators. And the textbook we're talking about, Let's Agree to Disagree, that we did with Rutledge is designed to do that. It's designed to try to teach people, give them the tools to to be able to dissect media. I know I quote this often, but I do so because it's so worth repetition. I'm paraphrasing, not quoting. But if you go back and look at the great former FCC commissioner, Nick Johnson, who wrote a book called Your Second Priority Once Upon a Time, that the towering media scholar, Robert McChesney, helped further popularize this. I'm very grateful for the work that McChesney's done over so many years. You know, Nick Johnson said, whatever your primary area of interest is, you know, we could fill in the blanks here with our, our, our different activist interests, whether it's environmentalism. And by the way, everybody should care all the time about everything. And, and of course, that creates fatigue. But nevertheless, Johnson argues that whatever your first proclivity is, you know, your interest to do change in the world and so on, if your second priority isn't media reform, media democracy, supporting free press principles, you're likely to gain very little ground in your primary area of interest. It's that simple. Media freedom and press freedom is something that impacts all of us because of how we get our information. You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our conversations after this brief musical break. Stay with us. And again, this is something that we also point out in the book, and we, we, we go through and, and quote lots of different people. We'd be remiss if we overlooked the great Mark Twain, too, who once quipped, get your facts first, then you can distort them as much as you please. So being critically media literate means that we're able to sort of understand what is factual and what is, quote, real, the rain is real. But then the next layer, as you indicated and Nolan had indicated, is well, how is that interpreted in one of the perspectives of many different people? And so while we can't be objective, we can at least do our best to understand and portray as accurately as possible those perspectives that are in fact different than our own. So rather than distort them into what they're not, right, we're going to do that anyway. But at least if we try to go back and understand what's actually happening, we might have a fighting chance at doing something about it. Yeah, and just to, to add to that, to, to your point about critical media literacy, you know, one of the things we point out in, in the text is the characters of our political opponents are so misleading that we, we've grown to, to hate them and find them almost like inhumane, right? There's a lot of data on this about, again, Americans' number one fear is other Americans, more so than climate change or terrorism or any of these things. They're afraid of other Americans. What we point out in the text is, 
whoever your political opponent is, it's a human being. You probably share some of the same principles. These aren't necessarily bad people, but sometimes they've gotten bad information that has made them act out in poor or bad ways. I think of the folks who stormed the Capitol, and I always use this example. Let's say the election was being stolen, which it totally was not, and I'm not trying to entertain that idea, but let's just for the sake of this argument say that it was being stolen. Then the people who stormed the Capitol would be heroes, theoretically, right? These are people who cared so much about democracy, they were willing to put their lives on the line. That's an admirable behavior. It's an admirable attitude we all share. We all love democracy in that way. Now, the fact that they got bad information that made them act out against something that wasn't threatening democracy to the point of violence where people were killed, that's bad. But it's not necessarily the person is a bad person. It's more an indictment of how bad information can make otherwise good people do horrible things. And so I think when we start to train our minds to see the humanity in people, even if they believe things that we think are crazy or wrong, that's a good starting point to where we can build upon. And that's what the text is talking about, is how do we engage in this constructive dialogue where we respect each other and we display decency to try and get to something closer that is truth. Very well put. It, it reminds me a bit of, I traveled quite a bit in Louisiana several years ago, reporting on and combating the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, which is kind of the tail end of the, of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and sat on quite a few porches with quite a few, you know, good old boys and talked to them about why they have the perspective that they have. And you know, a lot of them would say things like, well, I hate the Democrats. I'm like, cool, I do too. Let's have a beer um, and, and talk about why that is. And then, but then why do you feel that it's refugees who are the cause of your problems as opposed to this larger structure? Which brings me to my next question, which is a face-to-face -face meeting and hangout and having a beer on a porch, that makes it a bit more difficult to immediately go to personal attacks, at least for me, maybe not for some. The internet, which you highlight in the book, the internet has really cut meaningful debate and dialogue off at the knees. People exist in the bubbles, as you mentioned, and when they do reach out and interact with so-called other views, they do so in snippets, platitudes, misinformed hot takes, and actual just verbal abuse. And yet at the same time, we can't just pretend that the internet doesn't exist. It's not going anywhere. So can you touch upon a little bit how we can promote this meaningful debate and critical thinking while also existing in the technosphere? A great and complex question. One of the things we, we do in almost painstaking detail in the, in the text is we talk about how the internet theoretically can be anything. It's a communication tool and, and the platforms on it could be designed in any, any possible way. In the United States, they were largely designed from a bipartisan neoliberal framework where these tech companies saw them as a source of profit. And so to drive profit, they needed to get user engagement because when users are using the platforms, they're giving up data, which these companies can then analyze and sell that analysis to companies or organizations that want to predict or nudge human behavior. So when we really start to realize that's how the platforms are designed, we recognize that we, the user, are actually being used. We are the product. And insight into our behaviors is how these platforms maintain economic viability. So as you point out, they appeal to our, our desire to be confirmed. We want our views to be right. We want to think we're right. So we often get content that makes us feel as if we're right, even when we're wrong. But even more insidious, and I think that's where your question was going, is some of the most engaging content appeals to things like fear and hate. 
And they use techniques from like the gambling industry that get us to react rather than think. So if someone writes uh, something on our wall that angers us, we feel like we have to address it right now, this second, immediately, which means we're not thinking about it. We're not thinking about what we're writing. We're not thinking about what was said, et cetera. So when you start to recognize the tools like that, this is the case we make. It's not really individuals who are responsible for the problems on the internet. These platforms create an environment that privileges divisive, hateful, and fear-laden content. And big tech has done a really good job of making it seem like it's an individualistic problem, right? So you, the individual, you're the problem. If we can just change you or censor you or moderate your content, we're somehow going to solve all the problems in civil society. What we talk about instead is, look, if you really do care about a particular issue, whatever it is, your, your, your number one, number two, number three issue, if you want to fight white supremacy, you want to fight patriarchy, you want to fight climate change, I don't think social media is the venue where those issues can get the respect they deserve and where you can have the complex discourse that is necessary to actually take action. So if you really do care about those issues, I wouldn't be trying to communicate about them in a social media space. It actually works against those. It's going to devolve that conversation, whereas you point out face-to-face -face conversation is, is much different. And, and I want to point out in the text, this isn't just some wisdom that me and Mickey came up with sitting on our porch about writing about these things. Not only are there studies to confirm it, we actually use actual case studies. In Maine and Massachusetts, we highlight these trans activists who went around to voters and they purposely targeted transphobic voters and used face-to-face -face conversations at their doorstep to change minds. And academics were studying this work and they showed it actually did just 10 minute conversations, at least opened these transphobes up to the idea that trans people are human beings. They deserve equal rights and protections and et cetera. And so we have a lot of examples of that in the text. And so I, I think part of the answer to your question, Eleanor, is if we really respect these issues, we have to take them out of the digital space. Otherwise we risk just undermining our goals. They need to be in the human space not part of the technocratic infrastructure of surveillance capitalism. The other thing that we talk about, Daryl Davis comes to mind as another stellar example, an African-American activist that collected the robes and hoods of now former Klan's members because this person dared to talk to the people that allegedly hated him. I mean, again, not everybody can do that and not every instance, uh, it, we're not talking about people rolling over. We're not talking about people being doormats we're not talking about people allowing exploitation to happen just because we say we should agree to disagree. That's more of a rhetorical tool for the process of how we engage each other. And one of the big underlying, I think one of the big underlying issues here, and I say underlying because it's often visible, is the unconscious bias problem, the implicit bias problem. We have confirmation bias problems. We have self-serving bias problems. We have curse of knowledge bias problems, hindsight bias, optimism, pessimism bias, declinism bias. Are we done yet? No, we've got groupthink. We've got in-group bias. We can go on and on. Then we have other conditions that we talk about in the book, the Dunning-Kruger effect, the problems of motivated reasoning. Now, this is, of course, the teacher educator in me coming out with the lists and the examples, but Notice each of these things that, that I just mentioned that we outline and discuss in detail in the book, these are all things that we can address and try to understand and then use as tools to Socratically get others to begin to understand, hey, why did you just say that? And instead of it being an attack that I pointed out, 
it's something that someone internally can say, why did I say that? Where did that come from? Am I just repeating something I heard that sounded great on social media? Or did I actually look into it? Or is it my lived experience? And if so, how can I communicate that to somebody who does not have that lived experience such that it gets the respect that it deserves? And I think that what we try to do, I would at least submit humbly in our small part, we try to help do that through the text is we try to help give people opportunities and examples to take advantage of these things. And we are privileged insofar as we're educators. I'm teaching at a 20,000 student community college. I'm teaching working people. I'm teaching people that are incredibly diverse through all walks of life that are trying to use education to better their lives. So if they accidentally stumble into a class with one of us, I want them to take something away that's not memorized for a test. I want them to take away something that's going to strengthen our society and make it a better place for everyone to live in. And so I know that may be a tall order, but that is how change happens. It does happen. It happens with the unexpected conversation you have with that one person one day who remembers you and remembers what happened. And 20 years later, they're a civil rights attorney. I mean, I'm, I've been teaching college for 21 years. I'm telling you, this has actually happened. People will stumble through my class and the next thing you know, I'm writing books with them and they're writing more books than I am. This is how it happens. And it's incredibly daunting and we don't always see the net effects of it. We don't realize that sometimes people have fought for generations or over a hundred or 200 or 300 years to change things, to end a certain type of race-based chattel slavery. Notice I didn't say we ended slavery. For women to get access to the political system is it perfect? Of course not. Is there a ton of work to do? Absolutely. But we have to recognize that in our instant gratification society, this kind of work takes a lot of effort and it takes time. And I realized that we don't always have the time because change needed to happen yesterday or 10 years ago or last century, but that shouldn't prevent us from making the daily efforts that are required to build that kind of paradigmatic shift that's required to create a different world. I can't recall his name, but I once interviewed somebody who had worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign, and he had also worked to blow the whistle on the savings and loan debacle. And he said that we have to get away from this binary language that we can win or lose against certain forces of evil or capitalism or what have you. It's an ongoing fight. You're never just going to have this utopia. And actually, utopia means no place in Greek. So there you go. You're never going to have this utopia where everybody gets along and everybody agrees and it's got, everyone has sprout sandwiches and everything's just dandy. Like that's not realistic. And so the struggle to fight, but also build a better world, that always continuing. And I think that's a good place to leave it for today, but definitely would like to have y'all back on to discuss more of your work. Where can folks find Let's Agree to Disagree? You can get exam copies if you're an educator. So we're, we're trying to get as many free copies of this out to people who teach or want to learn about this or run workshops. So you can contact me, Mickey, at projectcensored.org. You can also get exam copies through Rutledge. This is an academic text through Taylor Francis. So Nolan and I aren't in this. We're not making money here. This is not a money book. It's an academic book that's probably too expensive, which is why we really want people to get free copies of it. Not that the people at Rutledge will like to hear us say that, sorry, but we need to. And there's a lot of free material at the projectcensored.org website, and you can get a hold of us there. 
find me on Twitter. I'm at Nolan underscore Higdon. And you can always get my work through Project Centered, do a lot of work with Project Centered. And I just want to echo what Mickey said. If you're an educator out there, you know, we really want to see this used in the classroom. We think there's a lot of potential for adding critical media literacy, critical thinking, and fostering constructive dialogue to be part of the uh, solution to many of our problems. Thank you very much, Eleanor, for the opportunity to chat. Thank you so much. It's sorely needed, particularly right now. Thanks, y'all. We want to smash, crash, mash, mash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear, we ain't scared, this is the vision. We and that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff, executive producer and host of the program. Our co-host is Eleanor Goldfield, and Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer and man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find any of our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in, and thanks for welcoming our new co-host, Eleanor Goldfield. Potential fiend at the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love, we flip the problems in.